Good morning. Happy Father's Day from our church to your home. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're joining us online through whatever screen you're looking at. Happy Father's Day. I'm especially grateful for my dad who might be watching right now. I want to say, Dad, I love you. I'm so grateful for you. Um, I am uh, who I am today. Uh, all the good stuff from you. All the bad stuff is me. <laughs> but I love you and I'm thankful for you. It's been a joy to work with you and serve with you in ministry for Nine years, for those of you who don't know, my dad is a senior pastor here at this church. And one of the things I love about my dad, dad, you might know this, is you kind of make everything fun. Even the little errands we would run uh, as kids going grocery shopping with you, it was always fun. We always had a way of finding fun. And sometimes it was fun for unexpected ways. I don't know if you remember this story, dad, but we went uh, to get something at Walmart and we were leaving. And as we're walking back to our blue Mercury Villager, if you remember that beauty, that soccer mom, Mercury Villager, we're walking to it. Uh, I get in the passenger seat, you got in the driver's seat, Dad, and I'm looking out the window. I'm really not paying attention to what's going on. I'm just kind of like looking out the window, but I can hear you fumbling around. I can hear my dad fumbling with the keys, trying to get in the ignition, and he was having a hard time. An awkward amount of time went by, and I kind of looked at him, and he looked at me right at the same time, and he said, hey, I can't get this key into the ignition. And something caught our eye that was below us, and we both looked down at the same time at what was a large uh, freezer or a large um, chest of ice in a cooler and like dozens of beer bottles and beer in there, like a charismatic amount of beer in there. And we both looked up at each other and said immediately, this is not our car. And we scattered, we exploded out of that car. And we went running into the parking lot. Like we, like we stole it or something. And people, if you're watching, I mean, imagine if you're watching this, right? You're like, you see these two guys get in a car. And then like a couple minutes later, they just explode out of it and run across the parking lot. And so I don't know if this ever happened to you. I don't know if you've ever gotten in a car that's not yours. I don't, this doesn't happen to me often, but when I do, there's Dos Equis in the middle of the two passenger seats, apparently. But if it, if it ever happens to you, there's a moment, right, where it, where it hits you, where you're like, oh, I'm in the wrong car. But there's kind of this dawning of that moment where you kind of look around and like it smells weird, <laughs> you know, it smells unfamiliar, or you see somebody in the car that you don't know, you know, you just look or you notice something. It, it, when it happens, it's abrupt, but it takes a little bit of confusion and unfamiliarity and you're out. Well, I want to use this as a picture today for what I want to talk to you about. Uh, pretend for a moment that like following Jesus or following God is this car ride. You're in his car. You're following God. You're trusting God. And I believe that there is one attribute, probably more than most, that makes you get out of that car, that makes you want to say, I'm done. I'm out. When I talk to people who've walked away or had a detour in life where they spent years away from God, not following him at all, and I ask him, like, what was it? It usually comes back to this attribute coming into question. This attribute of God being doubted, being something that they don't trust anymore, this one attribute. And I believe there are three experiences that all of us will experience in this life that do the most violence to our belief in this attribute of God. It it is these three experiences we're going to walk through today cause us to question this attribute more than anything else we'll go through. And the first one shows up in Genesis chapter 3. And it starts out like this, the first verse in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he, being Satan, who's manifesting in a serpent, said to Eve, the woman, did God really say you must not eat 
from the tree in the garden? Did God, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now we know if you're familiar with this story, this is the scene where humanity has its first fall, its first sin. This is the thing that sets humanity in a totally different path where evil and destruction and pain and suffering enter the world through this sin. And, and Satan is tempt, trying to tempt Eve and he's doing it by asking the question, did God really say you can't eat from any of these trees? But here's what he's also doing. He's misquoting God. Because that's not what God said. That's actually not what God said. This is what God said. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden. Except one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So what God actually said is the complete opposite of what Satan quotes. Satan tries, he misquotes it, but he says, did God really say you can't eat from any of these? God actually said you can eat from all of them, except one. Now, the question is, why did Satan get it wrong? Was it because he was hard of hearing that, you know, serpents have small ears or something? Well, we know that's not the case. The Bible says that's not it. It says it was, he was crafty. This was done on purpose. So here's what I want you to know, that if you're going to be successful in having victory over, over Satan's, you know, work or his, his work in your life, you have to know what his tactics are. Like any military operation, you want to know what the enemy's doing. You want to know why they're doing it. There's a whole uh, department of military uh, strategy of, that's called reconnaissance. You got to know what they're doing and why they're doing. You can't go in blind to a fight. So why is Satan misquoting God? It's not because he didn't hear him right. It's because he is crafty, he is shrewd, and he is trying to plant what is a seed of doubt. A seed of doubt in one of God's attributes. It's not, it's not the attribute of God's omnipotence, though. Omnipotence, all-powerful, right? If, if, if Satan was trying to plant a seed of doubt in God's all-powerfulness, this is how he would ask the question. Did God really create all these trees? Did God really have the, do you think God had the power to make all these trees? That would have been the question. If, if Satan was trying to plant a seed of doubt in God's omniscience, the all-knowing God, if he was trying to plant that seed of doubt, he would ask this question. Does God really understand and know how to maintain all these trees? How to get the photosynthesis to work just right to keep these trees going? That's what he would ask, but he didn't ask that question. If he was trying to plant a seed of doubt in God's omnipresence, this is God's present. He is present everywhere. He is present in every nook and cranny in the universe. This is the question that would have planted that kind of doubt. Is God really in and among all these forests and these lands and these, these, these gardens? Is God really present everywhere here? That would have planted some doubt in God's omnipresence, but that's not what Satan was after, that wasn't his tactic in trying to get Eve to sin. But if he was attacking God's omnibenevolence, God's all goodness, that he is good, you ask the question this way, did God really say he can't eat from any of these trees? Can't eat from any of these trees? That is how you plant a seed of doubt in God's omnibenevolence. His omnibenevolence is this. It means all 
and good. Omni is all, benevolent is good. It means that all good, all good is somehow finds its source in God alone. There is nothing that is good outside of God's presence, his leadership, and his activity. He is good, and he is the only good. Paul puts it like this, to live is Christ, to die is gain, to be in Christ. It's basically this idea that if I go to die and be with God, that is good, and to live, it is good because it's all about God. If I'm living a good life, if I'm living in truly good goodness, It's got to be found in God alone. And it also means this, that everything God does has good purpose. God doesn't make bad decisions. You and I will choose bad. We'll choose to do bad things. We will select bad things to put put in our our bodies, in our mouths, in our things. We'll, We'll do bad things. God will not do bad. He only does things that have good purpose. God is omnibenevolent. And man, you can hear the doubt in Eve's response, can't you? I mean, this is her response. The woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but can you hear it? No, we can eat. No, 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 we can eat from all the trees. But there is this one that we can't eat from. It's in the middle of the garden over there. Yeah, that's... That's the doubt. The damage is done. Eve is beginning, to, is beginning to assume two conclusions. And here's what they are. That God is good, but look at me, here it is. God is good, but there is some good that is across the border from God's leadership. No, 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 God's good. Like, we can eat from these trees and stuff, but there, there's some good out there. there. There might be some other good that I have to go and take initiative and go get This is the second assumption that Eve is starting to let percolate in her mind and her heart. It's that God knows what's good, but I can also know what's good. I mean, he told me it wasn't good, but I don't know. I think it's good. And you can hear Satan just, just, he knows what she's thinking. He's smart. He's crafty. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's done. So this is what he says next. He says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes, it's all about your eyes, Eve. You can know what's good. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God and you'll know what's good and what's not. Can you see that? It's all about the eyes. And then the woman gets, she starts to internalize that. You see this, Eve, this is what's going on in Eve. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, when she began to see, use her eyes, that it was good, that she's deciding what's good now, for, and good and pleasing to the what? The eye. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. They both used their eyes. The Bible describes uh, itself, God's word, like this, that it is a lamp unto our feet, that God's word is the only way we can see. It's the only way we can know and discern. Our eyes are guilty until proven innocent. Our, our conclusions about what's good or what's bad is guilty till proven innocent by scripture, by the light of God's word alone. So this is what temptation does. Temptation challenges the belief in God's omnibenevolence. It will challenge that belief by trying to convince you that God is holding out on you. 
that there is some good across the border from God's leadership. To get out of that car, to get out of that car of his leadership, I gotta go get some more good because there's some stuff in there that actually is good that I, I think is good. That's what temptation does. And Satan knows. He knows that at the beginning of every sin is a doubt in God's omnibenevolence. This isn't just the first sin of humanity. Theologians and scholars will tell you this. It is the template for how all sin goes in your life. All sin goes, it always finds its root in you doubting the omnibenevolence, the fact that all good, all good is found in obedience and submission and pursuit and my relationship with God. The moment you question that, I mean, think about this. Think of how dangerous you would be to Satan and how dangerous of a force you would be for, for, the, for good in the world if you woke up every morning and you were convinced that every minute of your day that you spent in submission to God's leadership was the most good. Think of how dangerous you would be. You'd wake up not wondering how much do I have to give to God today? How much time do I have to spend with him today? How much money do I have to give to God today? How much, how much of my energy or my gifts do I have to give to God today? If you really believe that God is the most good, you would give it all. You'd be saying, how much can I give to God? If you believed in his omnibenevolence, it would change your life. And it would also change your life the moment you doubted it. So here's a question to begin to wrestle with this first experience of temptation that gets you to wrestle with God's omnibenevolence. Uh, what is consistently the best part of my day and my life and does it have anything to do with God at all? Now, I'm not saying you like spend 24 hours a day just reading the Bible and praying. I'm just saying everything you're doing, do you do it in worship to God, even thanking him for it? Do you do, you do it in the, with a presence of mind that he is the one who gave you that good thing? Is that good thing you're enjoying actually good? Or is it in your eyes good? Or is it actually good? I mean, imagine if God was the most fun thing in your life. Imagine if following God was the most fun every day. I mean, how much of a force you would be for doing good, for being enjoy, enjoying truly good uh, goodness from God. So begin to ask yourself that question um, if you're questioning God's omnibenevolence. Um, temptation is what's gonna get you to think there's more outside of his leadership. The second experience we go through in life that, that, helps, that makes us question God's omnibenevolence is tragedy. Tragedy. If you've ever uh, had something happen in your life that was, that was really terrible and horrible, it, what, makes you, what it makes you do is say, is God actually good? You know, one of the things that, that sometimes um, you'll experience is not just this temptation that maybe there's good outside of God's leadership, but you'll experience something that's so painful, so difficult, so hard, you'll actually begin to ask the question, is God good? You ever asked that question? You ever thought that thought? God, why did this happen? It can't be good. Why did you do this? Because I think all that you do is good, but you are all, all powerful and omnipotent and you allowed this to happen and I can't see any good in it. So why God? You ever asked that question? Let me read you a passage of scripture where somebody else in the Bible asked that question. Mark chapter 15, verse 27, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it 
in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked Jesus among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You ever do anything right? And you, you, did, you thought you did it well? You thought you did something that was good? You, you went to church, you tithed, you gave your, your money, you gave your time, you gave your energy to God. You, you raised your kids in, in the way of the Lord. You told them what, what they were supposed to do and you told them what Jesus said and you, you tried to, as best you could, you tried to obey all the rules, all the, all the commandments of scripture. You tried your best to obey. You know you weren't perfect, but man, in your heart of hearts, all you want to do is follow Jesus. You're doing it, right? You're trying to, right? And then at the end of it all, like the kids, they don't follow God or the job that you thought God told you to take, it ended. Or the marriage that you committed to for better, for worse, it ended. Or, or the, the person you were praying for that you're told that you should pray for people, they didn't get healthier, they got sicker. And now you're there. You're like on a cross. You got, you're bleeding out. You're going, why God? Is this good? Why have you forsaken me? I did, I did everything you said. I did everything you wanted me to do. And why? Well, somehow in that moment, in that moment, right there while you're yelling that prayer, you're quoting the words of God himself. Jesus on the cross, quoting Psalm 22, which is what you do when you say and, and pray a psalm. It just expresses how you feel. That's why you pray psalms. He's praying out Psalm 22. Why, God, have you forsaken me? He knows exactly how you feel in that moment. The God of the universe knows what it's like to be forsaken. And then, and then what happened after that what he thought was his darkest hour, what he thought was the end of himself, what happened next was not God the Father coming down, picking him up off the cross, saying, I'm sorry, let me, feel, let me heal up your wounds. Let me show up. Let me restore your influence. Let me show people you really are my son and whom I'm well pleased. You know what didn't happen? None of that. You know what did happen? It got worse. It got worse. It didn't get better. He cried out, God, where are you at? Why have you forsaken me? And then it got worse. He died. Didn't get better. Didn't get better. He cried out to God, where are you? And then he died. You ever have that happen where you, you know, you go to God and you're like, God, um, I'm, this is it. This is it, God, I'm at the end. I'm at the end of myself. I got nothing. Where are you at? Show up, save me. I'm at the bottom of the pit. You cried out, and what happened next is it got worse. It didn't get better. It actually got worse. The job ended. The marriage failed. The person got sicker and died. This is, this is where it's at. This is our world. It's omnibroken, and we cry out to God in the middle of it, and it gets worse. Is that your story? 
somehow in that moment, the God of the universe can look you right in the eye and he can say, I've been there. I have, I've been there. I've cried out. I've felt that pain. And the next thing that, got, next thing that happened got worse. Didn't get better. We learned two things about God's omnibenevolence right there. The first is this, is that God is omnibenevolent insofar as he doesn't just try to explain to us how it all works out. I mean, think about it. If, you know, when you're going through tragedy, like if someone came into the hospital room and said, let me just get out a whiteboard and explain to you and connect all the dots as to how this horrible thing that's going on makes some sort of good, perfect sense. You, would that help you? Would that help anybody? Would that bring the person back? Would that fix the marriage? Would that break, make everything better? Would that make you feel good in your pain? No. You don't need to understand it. What you need is someone who understands what it's like to just cry with you, to feel your pain. Listen, God is omnipotent enough to take you out of pain, but God is omnibenevolent enough to get right in it with you and cry with you, to crawl into that pit and weep with you and feel your pain and make it his own pain because he did. He felt that pain. Yeah, God is omnipotent enough to take us out of situations. He can do it. He can pull himself off the cross. But when he was being asked, pull yourself off there and show us your power, what he was saying is, is I'm omnibenevolent enough to feel what my people go through in death, right to the grave. You want to see omnipotence? I'll show you that. But today, I'm going to show you omnibenevolence. second thing we learn about God's omnibenevolence is that his benevolence is big enough to take the omnibad, omnibroken, and do something good right in the middle of it. As my friend, Pastor Colton Seegers, reminded me this week that when Jesus was cut and the blood was coming out of his veins and the life was leaving his veins, as death was coming over him, life was coming back into us, his death is simultaneously our biggest source of life, of new life, spiritually eternal life through his death. So in the middle of the brokenness and the bad, our God is omnibenevolent enough to bring good right into the bad. That's omnibenevolence. And you can't see God's goodness until you start finding it at the cross. You can't, you're not gonna see how omnibenevolent, how big God's goodness is until you see it through the lens of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now some of you are thinking, well I, I, um, I'm in tragedy right now Well, and tragedy does challenge our belief in God's omnibenevolence. That's number two. But there's another kind of challenge to our faith that involves a different kind of tragedy. It is suffering, it is pain, it is hurt, but it is self-inflicted because we know we messed up and we're suffering for it. 
Our marriage ended, our job ended, our health is ending because of something that we know we did that was wrong. Transgressions challenge belief. That God's omnibenevolence is available for you right now. Right now. That's what happens with sin. Sin, failure, transgressions. Those challenge our belief that God's omnibenevolence is available to me right now, today. But God is omnibenevolent despite your omnibad. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. I deserve this. I deserve to suffer and die alone in a dump naked outside of a city. For we're getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus said, or then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him truly, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise today. Here's the sum total of this man's life. All of his deeds amount to nothing else but capital punishment that he knows he's worthy of. He knows he deserved it. His whole life built up to this moment where he's dying alone on a tree in a dump alone, full of shame and nakedness. He is just broken and he knows he deserved it. Talk about hopeless. He's at his own funeral. And yet, and yet, that whole life story and the worst and darkest hour and chapter of it places him directly next to the savior of the universe who can transform and completely alter his eternity. His whole life was a mess. And then it brought him to his worst hour He's broken. He is being crucified and he deserves it. And it sets him shoulder to shoulder with Jesus Christ. That's you right now. You're a mess. You're broken. And you know it's because you screwed up. I messed up. And it's placing you directly next to Jesus right now and his omnibenevolence to say, my good is bigger than your bad. I love you anyway. And I even used it to bring you to a place where you're watching on your phone, you're watching on some computer screen, you're watching late at night, you're watching right now, whenever, and you're thinking, how did I get here? And Jesus is like, I used it. And I brought you here because I want you to know my good is bigger than your bad. I am omnibenevolent. I am all good. And so... Let's make room for a God in our life who is omnipotent enough to take us out of suffering, to pull us out of pain, to stop all the temptation, to keep us from screwing up, 
But then let's also make room for a God who is also omnibenevolent, all good, powerful good, who can take us out of the pit in his omnipotence, but get in the pit with you and cry with you and love you in the middle of it with his omnibenevolence. Who could keep you from messing up your life in his omnipotence, but also in his omnibenevolence, love you in spite of it. Even use it to bring you right here to a place where you're hearing his love maybe for the first time because you're so broken and you know you need it. That's God's omnibenevolence. Let's pray. Jesus, in an audience this size, I know there are people watching right now who they prayed that prayer. They cried out to you. They said, why God? And you know what, Lord? They, they still don't have an answer. They don't have an answer that makes sense, that they can see and understand and connect the dots. They don't, they don't understand the why. They're still waiting for an answer to their question, why God have you feel forsaken me? And that feeling of being forsaken, they still don't have an answer for why it all went down that way. They don't know. But Lord, thank you that we have an answer to the reason why you were forsaken, Jesus. We know that answer. When you yell out, Jesus, why have you forsaken me? Thank you that you also told, also told us the answer. And that is that you love us, that you want to take our mess and all of our sin and take it so that you could be forsaken by God, but we would never have to be. And we would never have to live alone and outside the car, outside the protection of your goodness for eternity. Because Lord, you, chose to be forsaken 2,000 years ago on that cross. Thank you for your omnibenevolence. In Jesus' name we pray.